welcome to this month's edition of Midi's Junction with me, Anne-Marie Basada. In today's podcast, we're going to travel back in time to March 30th, 1936. This was the day the British High Commissioner, Arthur Warchup, inaugurated the Palestinian Broadcasting Service, or quite simply, the PBS. It was the second broadcaster to be established in the Middle East after Radio Cairo in 1934. It covered the region of Palestine, Jordan, Syria and Lebanon, as well as parts of Egypt. The new transmitter was in Ramallah, and the broadcasting offices were in Jerusalem. On the day of the station's inauguration, Warchup said, For some years I've been greatly impressed by the benefits that a well-directed broadcasting service can bring to the mind and spirit of any people who enjoy its advantages. He added that in Palestine, Broadcasting will be directed for the advantage of all classes of all communities. Before we get into the details of the programming of the PBS, we need to understand a little of what was going on at the time. This will be a very quick crash course in regional history. Entire books have already been written on the details. Following the fall of the Ottoman Empire in 1920 after World War I, the Middle East was carved up between the French and the British according to discussions held by members of the League of Nations. Palestine was officially placed under British control and was referred to as British Mandated Palestine or Mandatory Palestine. The majority of the population were Arab Palestinians, but there was a big community of Jewish Palestinians that predated the arrival of the British. In fact, the mix of communities and religions between Muslims, Christians and Jews had been, for the most part, relatively peaceful under the Ottomans until the 1916 revolt against the Ottoman Empire. Following the end of the Ottomans, the Balfour Declaration was pronounced in 1917, a British initiative that put in place an open-ended Jewish immigration and land purchase policy. By 1936, Palestinian Arabs were beginning to grow wary of Jewish immigration that were coming primarily from Central and Eastern Europe and demanded Arab independence from Britain. A policy which, if continued, will surely have as a result the replacement of the Arabs by the Jews. The growing tension exploded in April 1936 in what is referred to as the Great Revolt or the Arab Revolt. This ended in 1939, but during that time, the identities of the communities began to take shape, with many carving out their own ideas of nationhood. Just a year before the establishment of the Palestinian Broadcasting Service, Britain had revoked the license of the already functioning Radio Tel Aviv. London argued that such a new service would be beneficial to the region, as Andrea Stanton, a Middle East historian, explains. The British government used it as part of their annual reports to the League of Nations Mandate Commission to argue that putting in a radio station was a sign that they were living up to the terms of the mandate, and so they were supporting the the national development towards self-governance of Palestine as a territory that they were administering. Or perhaps Britain believed that modernization via a state-controlled radio station would resolve the growing problem of Palestine by focusing on programming aimed at pacifying each community. The establishment of the Palestinian Broadcasting Service called This is Jerusalem Radio aimed to service all three communities. Arabic-speaking, Hebrew-speaking, and English-speaking. This is Jerusalem Calling. That was the call sign of the 
Palestine Broadcasting System, and it was it operated in Arabic primarily, and then also Hebrew secondarily, and English as a third. And so, by using the name of the city as the call sign, it seemed that that was the like the common denominator, and so that was their call sign. Andrea Stanton is the author of This is Jerusalem Calling and is an associate professor of Middle East history at the University of Denver in the U.S. She's one of the first and few people to research the history of the PBS. This new service was modeled on the British Broadcasting Corporation as a non-commercial public station. It would have a monopoly across Palestine. Its funding was mainly from the British government, in addition to revenues from the license fees of radio sets. Its programming was aimed to educate and elevate listeners as citizens, rather than to entertain them as consumers, explained Stanton. Let's not forget that the 1930s was fast becoming the golden age of state-run radio across Europe and in its respective colonies across Africa and Asia. And the mid-1930s was a shining moment in radio for the Middle East. By the late 30s, there were a number of state-run stations in the region, broadcasting from Cairo, Beirut, Damascus and Mosul. As mentioned earlier, the aim was to target the two major language audiences, Arabic and Hebrew. It was also a way to minimize any anti-British sentiment. In terms of broadcasting hours, Arabic had the bulk of the time, and there were different arguments made for that by the mandate officials, primarily the one of population, and then also the a kind of subsidiary argument, which was that either they felt that there weren't other great options for Arabic speakers to access, whereas the Yeshiv population uh, was able to listen to other European stations in various languages, presumably understand them. And then the other argument was that, uh, particularly in the, the mid and late 30s, there was a great concern among British officials in London and to a lesser extent in Palestine, that other European countries, and particularly Italy, were broadcasting in Arabic as anti-British propaganda. And for that reason, censorship was still quite heavy. Because it was controlled by the, the British mandate state and because there was a lot of pretty in, intensive pre-broadcasting censorship, it certainly wouldn't have espoused an anti-colonialist line and the kind of editorial line was pretty muted on all three languages. As noted earlier, the High Commissioner's speech at the inauguration of the Palestinian Broadcasting Service programming would educate and elevate citizens and not simply entertain them. But through what type of programming? And in terms of programming, we actually do have a lot of detail, again, thanks to the program guides that were put in the newspaper. We know that there was a lot of music, some live music by the station's music employees, orchestral groups of various kinds of doing different kinds of music. We know that there was children programming, the children's hour, which tended to be mostly plays. We know that there were a lot of talks, kind of short educational talks, 10 to 15 minutes. The Arabic ones tended to be on everything from kind of great moments in Arab world history to things like the history of orange production um, of oranges, orange agriculture in Palestine or in the Levant.
Let's begin with the different approaches in programming to music. In terms of the music, the kind of musicology studies have actually put a lot of focus on both the Hebrew side, big debates in terms of what kinds of quote-unquote oriental music should be played on the Hebrew side and what kinds of quote-unquote either Jewish folk or Eastern folk music should be played during the Hebrew broadcasting. In fact, the PBS had an in-house orchestra when it came to playing traditional folk music. Rima Tarazi is a musician and a chairperson of the board and a founder of the Edward Said National Conservatory of Music in the West Bank. She describes memorable performances of famous Arab musicians from Egypt, Lebanon, and Syria who frequently visited Palestine to perform in the major cities and in the newly established PBS. She says that the PBS actually played a major role in spreading such music across the region. Some really interesting research on the classical, the kind of European classical music that the PBS played, particularly in increasing hostility towards Jews in Eastern and Central Europe. By the mid-1930s, there was an influx of classically trained European um, Jewish musicians who had come to Palestine who did not all end up doing work with the PBS, but a number of them did. And so there's been some research on that, some really interesting research on that. Rima adds that the PBS, while working to share and spread traditional local music, also played an important role in introducing classical music to the public. She adds that one major event during the period of the PBS was Arturo Toscani's visit to Palestine and his conducting of the PBS orchestra. One program called the New Arab Home was created by a Lebanese woman who married a Palestinian and moved to Palestine soon after. Her program aired at the turn of the 40s for 12 episodes. Shireen Sakali, the author of Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine, and a Middle East historian at the University of California in Santa Barbara, further explains this program. This was a much broader phenomenon that was taking place in the Ottoman world in the late 19th century that many scholars have written about in which the home and the household and its economy became spaces that were parallel to the space of national economy that was being constructed. And so what Selwa Said did in the new Arab home was give prescriptions about what ideal domestic space in Palestine, a modern domestic space, should look like. Much of the content dealt with household ideas, but in a way that Shireen says highlighted a certain level of identity amongst the Palestinian women. She emphasized hygiene, she emphasized calculation, she emphasized budgeting and finance, and her prescriptions had a lot to say about class, had a lot to say about nationalism and were very much positioning the middle and upper class Palestinian women in a broader struggle for both social dominance as well as national self-determination. The program was targeting Arabic-speaking Palestinian women, but of a certain social class who could afford the time to tend to the house and also to listen to the program itself. The audience that Salwa Said was targeting were 
middle and upper class Palestinians. And so she was definitely, you can see within the radio program, the way that the Palestinian subaltern, that is the maid, the Bedouin, the worker, the farmer, they can never be her audience or the listener. However, she is also quite anxious and makes clear in her various radio programs that your maid might be listening in. So make sure to treat her in ways that allow her just enough freedom, but not too much freedom that would in any way challenge your authority over the home. Did the establishment of a radio station mean anything to those under British control? While there hasn't been any research to support the claim that there was a demand for such a service in Palestine, Andrea says radio often was a symbol of sovereignty and perhaps a stepping stone to finally having independence. But the PBS's mission to cater to two communities that were blatantly divided may have worked to the disadvantage of London. There was programming for the Palestinian Arab and programming for the Hebrew-speaking European or newly arrived immigrant. But what about the Palestinian Jew whose family had been in Palestine for generations? One of the things I think that's really important and not looked at enough in the mainstream is the way that Zionism and Arab nationalism colluded to make someone like the Arab Jew an impossibility, right? And that history is a really important one to recover if we are to think about the possibilities of different futures. And perhaps while the PBS was able to steer Palestine into the modern era of radio, we often forget that radio has a capacity to unite as well as to divide. That's it for today's edition of Midi's Junction. A special thank you to my guest, Andrea Stanton and Shireen Sekari, and to Michael Fitzpatrick for his help in this report. If you like today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe to Midi's Junction on your favorite platform.